And now it's time for East Cast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. Welcome to East Castaway, where East Cast, our monthly East London-focused arts, culture and community show, leaves the studio and heads to a local London venue for our live listening lounge event, where radio makers and shakers showcase audio works to a live audience in a cosy setting. In June, we were at Set Space in Dalston for our midsummer edition of East Castaway, and over the next two hours, we'll be playing the incredible range of submissions we received for this event from radio makers across the UK, as well as two live sound art performances by Mike Brooks and Blank Skull. I'm Pearl Wise, and East Castaway is co hosted with Jesse Lawson. So without further ado, let's settle in to the East Castaway Listening Lounge. First we'll hear The Invisible Sound Artist by London-based producer Dan Wilson and we'll take an audio tour through Detroit's Heidelberg project with Welcome to Heidelberg by Samuel Shelton Robinson, co-produced with The Kitchen Sisters. And East Cast's Jessie Lawson takes us to the streets of Dalston for her Starting Conversations series. You'll hear an excerpt from Conversations about Street Harassment. The unseen. They, they just can't be seen. They're unseen for interviews and things, overlooked by the machinery of a capitalist society trapped in small towns and bullied into conforming with the prevailing waves of mutual misery but quietly resisting, coerced into unworldliness. So for some small escape they make sounds in desolate marshlands just to shake off the encroaching fungus of frustratingly involuntary idleness. People in the distance can't quite see what's going on across that marshland because it's misty and the miscomprehension eventually fosters strange hostility. It's a problem. I mean it quite literally. It's an issue and it's depressing. I often wonder what the people I went to university with are doing now. Have they become invisible? I'll always remember one of the tutors confessing that sonic art degrees aren't known for providing an abundance of career prospects. Actually, I don't even want to know what the people I went to university with are doing now. I never talk to them anyway. And also, the other students, they seem to be born into some kind of aristocracy and the knowledge that they inevitably landed on their feet after graduation would only make me bitter. Classism is rife, despite the government's attempt to stop it. Anyway, to study sound, to really study sound, you have to become a hermit monk. Then you'll find enlightenment. This may come at a price. You may find yourself catapulted into a strange twilight realm 
criminally out of phase with the prevailing mood resonance. Any latent awkwardness gets exploded under conditions of unemployment into astronomical wonky. Phases flipped and waveforms clipped. After three years of floating, I found that no warehouse, office, bakery, depot, factory, institute, apothecary, store, stable, cafe, library, kitchen, bathhouse, yard, garage, abattoir, conservatoire, laboratory or garden centre will employ me. One particularly gutting remark at the local job centre where I've been signing on since graduation opened my eyes to people's closed ears. After the usual exchange of stilted pleasantries, how's the job search going? Not very well. I've got a degree, but nothing's out there. Nothing seems to be happening. The man suddenly said that Sonic Art is a Mickey Mouse degree, meaning that he considers it to be a subject worthless in what certain stuck-up bastards smugly call the real world. This is particularly offensive. I found it personally offensive. And the comment betrays a real lack of understanding of the most noblest of arts. This phrase, Mickey Mouse degree, is loaded with political baggage as it's a term often used to smear those newer college and university courses instated during the Labour government's education drive, which aimed to get more people into study and education, which is a good thing. For some reason, certain people seem to resent the idea of education, so Mickey Mouse implies that an area of study is silly or or has no relevance or worth. But it means nothing, it's just a faddish bashing stick certain people use to bash the government with uh, all study is good study isn't it well it, it increases the mind doesn't it anyway uh, i told the job center bloke that he was completely mistaken anyway the study of sound is actually a fine art the highest of all subjects in fact because it encompasses history electronics art art theory acoustics Mathematics, music, architecture, geography, geometry, ecology, anthropology, philosophy, psychology, physiology, design, computing, ergonomics, semiotics, cryptography, engineering, physics, metaphysics. More tenuously, it could also be linked to theology, astrology, therapeutics and medicine and dancing. After I spewed all this out, and I probably repeated a few of those subjects in my apoplexy at the time, or possibly added a few irrelevant ones like cooking by mistake, he replied, Well, you're at the job centre now. It hasn't got you very far, has it? This made me even more furious, so I called him a tosser. He may have some right to be argumentative or dismissive of my discipline, which doesn't seem to have led to anything economically, because it was his taxes that paid for my student loan to undertake the studies in Sonic Art in the first place. I live in abject poverty with my parents, always looking in bins for sustenance. It's a horrible situation, psychically damaging. So not, not one penny of my student loan has been paid off yet, and it could well never be paid off if no jobs are forthcoming. If that's the case, then my research belongs to the taxpayer and will always belong to the taxpayer. Therefore, to appreciate such work, the taxpayer must come to understand the nature of sound. To do that, they need to become open to the creative power of sound and, most of all, their own creative faculties, a kind of revolution in their consciousness. 
but paradoxically that the personal revelations that all this involves might propel the taxpayer out of tax payment into the twilight realm. If this happens, a kind of communal church of sound would need to be founded. But all this is just pie in the sky, I'm diverging off topic here. But the point is, an an employment advisor is surely employed to get the client happily into a job relevant or resonant to the client's interests and capacities. It seems unbelievable that somebody in a public service should have absolutely no comprehension of the concept of sonic art and be so dismissive. Where are people's exploratory instincts? Have they been stifled by something? And what is laziness? Surely inertness can be transformed into action by resonance at the resonant frequency of enthusiasm. What's needed is a resonant idea carrier wave. This might get people at least appreciative of the seemingly infinite possibilities of sound. Unfortunately, I don't know what this key carrier wave idea might be. The only solution is to improvise, make as many different noises as possible in different places at different times, and judge the responses. Hopefully, we'll soon be able to discuss our sound-making activities with anybody on the street and exchange knowledge and insight. Detroit today stands at the threshold of a bright new future. Whether you come to live, to work, to visit, Detroit is unsurpassed for opportunity and growth. The city on the straits welcomes you to build and, yes, to dream. Keep on riding until they stop on it. On July 23, 1967, Detroit was hit by a riot. 43 dead, thousands injured, and a city in flames. America's iconic motor city, Detroit, waving the white flag, the city filing for bankruptcy. It's a place where the population has dropped nearly 2 million people since 1950. This is Heidelberg Street. It's where the artist Tyree Guyton grew up. The whole street is covered in polka dots. Everywhere that you see a polka dot in Detroit, that is the mark of Tyree. I'm Lori Saginaw. I am a longtime fan of the Heidelberg Project. You cannot look at this street and not feel there's a magical element. You smile, your eyes get wide. It's every emotion. Tyree was mentored by his grandfather, Sam Mackey, the house painter. Tyree will tell the story of his grandfather putting a paintbrush in his little hand, telling him he could change his world with this. Sam Mackey loved jelly beans. That was Tyree's brainchild for polka dots. When he died, Tyree polka dotted his coffin. And order have broken down in Detroit, Michigan. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. They you are. You're going to sit in front of your television set and listen to LBJ tell you that violence never accomplishes anything, my fellow Americans. Oh, the It ain't a thing in the world. 
start shooting tear gas and everything, and then they brought a tank out here, started spraying the whole apartment. They had us to come out, put our hand over our head, and lay out there in the middle of the street. Everything that Tyree has done is a commentary what has gone on in Detroit since the riots, what was going on in Detroit leading up to the riots. But it's not just Detroit. It's a universal message about how people have to fight and what kind of odds they're up against. Tyree was living on this street at the time of the riots in 1967. Most of the lots were abandoned houses. There were a lot of children on this street. Tyree mobilized them and they started cutting the lawns and sweeping the street. They became his little artistic army. It was a daily vigil to create more art on the street rather than create crime. The first house Tyree decorated was abandoned and being used by prostitutes. He covered the entire house with naked baby dolls. The imagery and power of it made it a place nobody wanted to go and pull tricks anymore. The Numbers House is describing the despair of poverty, the notion of banking on the lottery to transform things, to move upward, and the futility of that. He had a line of suitcases the size of a football field, and that represented the flight from Detroit. He uses shoes, shoes being the soles of people. They completely covered the street when cars drove over them, like a flat tire. These shoes have hung from trees, reference lynching. Tyree has told the story that his grandfather, as a young boy, was present at a lynching and looked up. All he could see were the soles of the person's shoes. That image stayed with Tyree. There was a tree that was ornamented like Christmas, but it was all old purses. It represented welfare and the empty pocketbooks of the women, most of them domestic workers, in this city. In this big grassy area was all abandoned lots. He had a line of suitcases the size of a football field, and that represented the flight from Detroit. Everything is incredibly powerful commentary on what's gone on in Detroit. The city of Detroit has actually come in with bulldozers and knocked this project down numerous times with some concocted violation that he's committed. It's a real commentary on bureaucracy and the embarrassment that the city government felt about the attention that this street was drawing and their discomfort with the way that it portrayed Detroit.
I guess so. How would you describe it? Well, when you, when you invade a person's personal space on the street. Oi! Guys assuming that you're just walking along looking for somebody, you know, to hook up with. If a guy makes a pass at you and you ignore him, but depending on how you, you go about doing it, it could turn ugly. Unwanted attention from somebody you don't know? I don't necessarily agree with it, but I've, I've done it, you know, nothing nothing major like just shouting out of a car window, hello darling, and you know. I'll tell you why I used to do it, because I was normally in the car with my mates and I was like, it made you look big, you know what I mean? Like, you know, more like that, like it wasn't about because I know that nothing's going to happen, that girl's just passing by on the street, you know what I mean? It makes me feel annoyed, but that's because I'm older, you know. I might totally ignore it or just, um, you know, say fuck off or might, I suppose, use humour, you know. I did that when I was at school, like, you know, pinch girls' asses and things like that, you know, which is probably still wrong in it, you know, if you're a woman, like, you know, but, that, you know, the last time I've done that was probably about 14, 15, you know. Some people just shout stuff that you don't want to hear. And what do you guys do when that happens? You just continue to them, ignore them. Yeah. Or yeah, if you're with your eat... parents, you tell your parents and your parents will do something about it. Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing to do because sometimes you feel like you don't you don't know what comes in your way. You just walk down the street and someone calls you ugly. Yeah, street just gives you anything. Yeah. Harassment. Especially in Dawson because there's yeah. lots yeah, of... Yeah, there's more people. Yeah. yeah. Like, last time I was walking with my friend oh, and then did this girl was like, um... What was that guy saying again? What? Oh, um, yeah. yeah. He was about, saying inappropriate things. Yeah. 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 That was really harassment. Like sexualized. Yeah. yeah. It's really weird. And what did, how did you Especially when we were young. Happened? I walked away. We just felt negative and like, we just walked away because like, we just don't want to get involved and something might, because you see the children that are dying. <laughs> I don't want to die young today. <laughs> and how old are you guys? I'm 11. 11. I'm 11. I'm telling you the 11. After the show, Everybody's getting ready to go and slap me on my bottom. It's okay, I'll never do it again. <laughs> You'll never ever do it again. And being a black woman, having grown up with racism, it hasn't stopped. I do fight my corner. I see it as complimentary. It all depends how highly strung the individual is. It's on the receiving end. You know, some women are so like uptight, you know, you can't even look at them. Do you know what I mean? Because I've seen it, I've witnessed that happening. You know, and it could turn a person's day, couldn't it? If somebody's having a bad day, feeling low about themselves, and you know, you give them a compliment, you know, that could that could turn everything around for them. Can I put a situation to you? Then? Yeah, of course you can. Okay, so, um, so I've been harassed a lot on the street. Right. Okay. So I, as in, like, all, all spectrums from people whistling at me to people like groping me when I don't want them to. Like, it happens yeah, no, a lot. And I don't like it, and it makes me feel unsafe, and it makes me feel upset. Mm. And you don't know, maybe I'm walking down the street, and I've already been groped twice that day, and someone shouted at me, and someone's wanted me down the street. And then you come and you're like, oh, you know, give us a smile or whatever you do. And maybe you think that's a compliment, but you don't know how I'm feeling that day, and like what's already happened to me. And for me, that's all in the same spectrum because I don't know if you're a nice guy or if you're going to try and do something to me that I don't want you to do. Yeah. I understand. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, um, it's like women that are actual victims of of crime. You know, sexual crime. I mean, um, you know, you're not to know where a person's coming from. You know what I mean? Um, from my own perspective, it's done innocently. 
you know, in a, in a kind way. Um, but, you know, what you've just said, obviously it shines light on things. You know, uh, yeah, it does. It shines a new light on the situation. Grown people that are always saying, saying yeah. but then they know we won't do anything because we're young. Yeah. Because yeah. they just take but advantage. It's not, it's not like that. We, we will say something because it's justice, you know. Leering and um, staring to actual groping on the street and being sexually assaulted, but also catcalling, whistling, sexualized comments, being followed on the street. All of these things fall under that umbrella the usual sort of uh, being shouted out by people in cars, people letting you sit on their hand. <laughs> that is something that happens quite a lot, um, as if men don't have feeling in their hands as well. Oh, I just didn't realise. Um, and, uh, yeah, just a, there's a whole spectrum of harassment that sort of is part of this spectrum of gendered violence. Yeah, I don't know. I think as a woman of colour as well, there's often a racialized element to harassment that we experience. I've had a man try to smell me to, quote, see if I'm Iranian. Weird things like that. Actually, like, so many people that I know experience a lot of harassment when they were wearing school uniform and things that, like, really shouldn't be sexualized but are. And so a lot of people actually start experiencing harassment before they even have any kind of sexual identity of their own. Flirting is mutual. It's It goes two ways. And same with compliments. Like, a compliment by definition is something that makes you feel good. And so if it hasn't made you feel good, then it's not a compliment. And if you are not participating in it, it's not flirtation. Yeah, I'm Kelsey. I'm a coordinator at Hollaback London. So say you're um, on, you're walking on the street and you see um, someone like who's clearly not enjoying the conversation that they're having. Um, and you can just go over and be like, ask them for directions is quite a good one. Asking for the time. You just start a different conversation and sort of like turn your body so that they, the person experiencing the harassment also has to turn their body and you just disrupt that conversation in that moment. Or things that I've also done, if it's um, on the street, it can be, you can like just pretend that it's someone that you know. So like you just sweep them along with you and you're like, oh my God, hi, I haven't seen you for ages. How funny is it to run into you here? Like, Whoa. And then you're just like in a conversation and you're sort of walking along. I think for men, it's really important to call other men out. I think that's really, really powerful to actually um, speak to your male friends about these issues. And to it's about challenging those behaviours. And I think it's really powerful when men do that as well. And also because it takes some of the labour off of women who are already experiencing this stuff. So that's like a good show of solidarity is to be able to stand up to your friends who are men as well. You've just heard The Invisible Sound Artist by Dan Wilson, Welcome to Heidelberg by Samuel Shelton Robinson and the Kitchen Sisters, and Starting Conversations, Street Harassment by Jesse Lawson. Next up, we'll hear an extract from Sean, recorded by London-based radio and podcast producer Lucy Dearlove for Lekka, her podcast about food. An extract from Art of Now, Dangerous Places, a radio documentary by Michael Umney about artists working in places of violence, conflict or oppression and an extract from King's Cross Connections, an audio portrait of King's Cross over a day by Lucia Scadzocchio, produced for the King's Cross Story Palace. Come on, go. Come on, go. Marwana. 
Come on then. You two. No, not. So you kind of want to. You pull. But when you do that, it brings milk down into the udder, and then you kind of squeeze it like that. So you want to lock the, lock the milk off so it doesn't go back up into her. Okay. Into her udder. Right. So you just hold on to the top of the teat. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Oh, brilliant. I've been coming to Barsley since I was eight, so it's kind of like my second home. And there was a job advertised for island manager, so I thought, what the hell, I'll give it a go, and got the job, which was exciting and terrifying. And then we moved here. Well, Mark, my partner, he already lived here. He was at the observatory, so that was a, an added bonus. But we moved to live here full-time on December the 27th, uh, not last year, the year before. So it's pretty intense. Right? We we arrived and this, the whole kitchen needed a clean before we even did anything. And there was like a dead starling in the front room. And uh, yeah. And that was your Bartsy welcome. That was the welcome. We did have nice warm welcome from the people, from the farmers, but yeah. That was dead, the island's welcome. Dead birds and mould everywhere and mice. If that island is full, so with visitors, how many maximum? No more than 65. How many people live here now, full time? Just four of us, full time. There's the same number of dogs as there are humans here over winter. Can you explain some of the ways in which life here is different to on the mainland? So we're off-grid, which is an easy way to start. We have no sewage system here, so we have compost toilets. The water comes from the island well, so you have to boil it before you drink it. And then rainwater for washing. Luckily this morning we had a bit of rain. Surprise, surprise in Wales. But we haven't had much rain recently, so that's quite a relief to get the, the rainwater. It makes you appreciate things so much more. And the, the process of doing things, there's time involved in things. It's not that life goes slow here, it's just that you have to build in more time to do like really basic things. Having a tea break here takes at least like 45 minutes because it takes like 20 minutes to boil the kettle sometimes. And you've got to go and milk the goat. Yeah, and then you've got to milk the goat, yeah. I've got, in my house, electric, which is generated through solar. All the other houses that people can come and stay in, they only have electric for a fridge. There's no Wi-Fi. I've got Wi-Fi, thank God. Uh, but no, but that's for your job. That's my job, exactly. And for messaging friends. Of thank course. You. Yeah. Um, people that come to stay here don't have that. There's no phone signal here, so if you want to phone anyone, you've got to climb a mountain. This is what's nice about this place. You don't see people with screens. People are kind of always engaged in what's going on around them and who they're with, uh, which is really nice. So there's stuff like that. I'm sure there's other things. I mean, like last night I said it was my bath night and it's like going back like a hundred years. But this time of year, like we don't have a full wash every day. Like I have a tub wash. Because you can't. You can't. We just don't have enough water. And it's quite funny. You'll go right. I like go down to the farm and I'll notice that one of them's got wet hair. And I was like, oh, was it bath night? It was our bath night too. That's funny. And like we're just like comparing these like little island quirks yeah i suppose the other thing is trying to to grow our own food because getting food here can be quite challenging when we arrived our kitchen looked like a corner shop like we had just like cans everywhere because that's what get kind of gets you through the winter they've got this crane on the mainland where they'll load it into the boat but then when it gets here we manhandle each item individually that's kind of the other thing like all of your things are on for all to see so you know if you go to tesco and you're like oh i'll sneak in a packet of like 
digestives or something, I don't know. Like, Rachel at the farm has got this weird addiction to sauerkraut. So last time, like, there were, like, four pallets of sauerkraut that came on. I was like, what the... Like, what's that about? But you can't, like... Yeah. So everyone knows, basically, what you're eating, how it's in scenarios like that. What are your biggest cravings when, like, in the depths of winter? Probably fruit and, like, cucumbers. I thought it would be, like, pizzas and, like, takeaways. But actually, like, you can make your own curry from scratch. There's no delivery. Although the other week I did have someone bring me around a curry. They'd made too much and they were like, it was about nine o'clock. They were like, hello, um, we've got a curry. I was like, oh my God. Come in. Amazing. And like, I didn't eat it at the time, but I, we had it the following night. And then another time some guys went fishing and they had some mackerel and they turned up. We'd had dinner, but it was fresh out of the sea. So I was like, brilliant. So I had mackerel for pudding and just like pan fried it with some butter. And it was just oh, amazing. So is that anti-mouse? Oh yes, yeah, so big plastic boxes. We have a lot of mice problems in the winter. They come in and like stay inside and they're really clever about this. And apparently one of the stories I've heard is that a few years ago they kept having mice in the observatory. So as an experiment, they caught some of the mice, took them all the way to the lighthouse, which is like a mile and a half away, and they painted nail varnish this is a bit of the story I don't believe because no way did anyone have nail varnish on them. So it must have been like gloss paint or something. But anyway, took them down to the lighthouse, set them free, and the same mice returned to the observatory a mile and a half away. Basically, in the winter, like we'll, most of our dinners will be like, you know, a tomato sauce or whatever with pasta or rice. Or and something. it's based from tins. It's and tins. Dried. Yeah. I love cooking and I like trying new recipes, but you can't really do here. But when people leave you food, uh, which happens quite regularly, which is lovely, does differ in what it is. You kind of like, on Saturday, we had loads of food left and we shared it all out amongst people anyway. But I was like, right, what do I do with a courgette? Some dodgy spring onions and, like, something else. So I just, like, you kind of have to create a meal out of what you've got, which I really like. And, you know, when we eventually probably move to the mainland at some point, hopefully that I'll, like, keep that. that. So... Because I was terrible when I used to live on the mainland. It's so easy just to pop into the shop on the way home and think, like, what do I want for dinner rather than what have I got in? Whereas with us, it's like, what is going off first? And also we eat things when, like, most people wouldn't eat them. One funny story, I remember once... I was on a patrol and there was a phone rang. Now, you're not supposed to answer your phone, but this is 3 a.m., so I pick up the phone. And it's my friend Itamar, who's a viola player, calling from Switzerland and saying, Mati, do you want to hear a beautiful sound? And I hear the sound of waterfall. And I'm there wearing all my, you know, equipment, and he's in Switzerland playing with a Verbier orchestra. So I cried because I thought life was over. <laughs> Here I am wearing all this stupid equipment and waiting for something that never comes. I've been friends with the composer Matty Kovler for years and he'd never mentioned his time in the Israeli Defence Forces. I served in the military from 1999 to 2002. It's a three-year mandatory service. I found myself in the worst possible unit of the Israeli military, which is the military police. The cases that I got to investigate in Jenin included, for instance, accidental killing of four Palestinian children, 
uh, by a tank. I also remember being present when a bunch of Palestinian teenagers were basically stripped to their underwear and, and had to wait on a bus with their eyes closed. I remember sitting there and just pinching myself and saying, remember this because this is, this is what life is. I do have to say that there was no cruelty or anything like that, but it was devastating to see this. In the heat, it was August. Um, this is a glimpse from my experience from Janine, you know, memories from Janine. You know. I remember imitating the, the shouts of the commander in the battalion I was in. I can demonstrate if you want. Because when we used to wake up, they said, Good morning, division number three. My music changed drastically following the army service. We're actually sitting here right now at the house of my dear teacher, Andre Haidu, who passed away a year ago. You know, as a Haidu student, I was studying at this private school in Jerusalem, having my first opera produced, thinking that I was on the top of the world, and, you know, how little did I know about life. This experience in the armies was something that in Judaism, we call meaning the descent is in order to ascend. It was the necessity in descending to this perhaps lowest point in my life in order to find meaning and potentially create something that, that has more depth to it. I think it has to do with the humanity of music. What is music if not communication? This period of Matty's life unquestionably changed him and his music. For the people I met in Janine, the suggestion of any comparison would be offensive. Their lives are not directly comparable. But in some respects, their art-making is marked by the same forces, the same events. Who are we? What are we doing here? And do we have the right to do the things that we do and, and how to live with all this? Artists of my generation who find themselves very often outside of the borders of Israel have to ask themselves these questions. These are not going away. And I think these questions contribute to the vulnerability that you hear in the music and is present there. <laughs> There's no steam trains, <laughs> there's not many diesel trains. 
to what you're going to be discussing today. Ah, it's to do with information which we're collecting from books and basically going to scan and store and so the information is held digitally. It's part of an information that we can provide a service to people who are not necessarily interested in railways per se, but do have an interest in aspects of railways. Sometimes I sit and watch other people. It's quite nice to sit and watch other people. <laughs> so, for example, sitting here at the station observing people, do you make up stories about who they are and where they're from? No. No, 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 no. What kind of things do you observe about them? Sometimes where they're going, what they're doing, think, mm, no, they're going the wrong way, or like anybody else, what are they wearing that for? <laughs> Does it matter? That's the whole point. As long as they're not creating a fuss, you know, it's like if you like two blokes kissing. Does it matter? Some people are offended. Why? They're not hurting you. So you're quite open-minded? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Let's face it, they call it a small world, it is, so you're inevitably going to see somebody you've met somewhere. Oh, what's he doing here? It's a fact of life. You're going to bump into people. You're going to trip over people, see people you didn't expect to see in the strangest of places. Then you might see somebody else the following week. It just happens, people travelling around all over the time. Yes, a Franciscan habit. So you're a Franciscan... Friar. That's a sort of technical detail. Oh, here's a confrere. Right. Hello. Hello. Sorry, nice to meet you. Yes, strange places we meet. <laughs> We're the same, same brotherhood. Are you off to the same place? Uh, Probably not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Leeds. <laughs> so what time's your train? 3.30. And mine's 3.35. I don't think we're on the same train. No, oh, good. Have a seat. Did you know you... Is this a coincidence? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. wonderful. Yes. There's about 40 of us in the UK and we live in different houses, so we don't know what the other... The right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing very well. Have you met before, though? You know each oh, yes. other? Oh, yeah, we all know each yeah. other, yeah. So we get together every year for a week in Dorset. So how long have you been a friar? Since 1970. And um, what... That decision? I suppose basically a vocation you believe God has called you to this way of life and therefore you respond. So I got my first calling when I was 15 and I had a very bad English teacher, so me and my best friend did art in the back of class and she brought in a book of the work of Pierre Gilles, who are French photo artists. And they did a series of photographs based on the saints. And there was an image of Martin de Porres. And I saw that and went, that's what I'm going to end up doing. And then went, no, that's a stupid idea. Who would want to do that? So then decided to do anything else I could. Um, but at the age of 25, joined the order. And how did your parents react all that? Mixed. So they're not of a Christian background. So when I joined, they weren't sure what I joined but came and saw and realised that it makes me who I most am and makes me happy, and they love that. So, you know, I came up and talked to you because I saw you were wearing a habit. Does mm. that happen a lot? I think more and more people today don't understand who you are, perhaps. They may think you're a Buddhist or a Hare Krishna or whatever. You do get people who just go up and say, you just want to talk, they feel there's someone there they can speak confidentially to, or that you'll pray for them. There are those who just, 
you know, darn curious, really, which is fine. You know, you're dressed in a medieval garment, so that's understandable. So um, it's an opportunity, I think, for talking with people, and uh, that's good. Yeah. The thing I love most, though, is children who become a Jedi Knight, and it just leads into all these wonderful conversations because that's their cultural link to what I'm wearing is being a Jedi. <laughs> so. We just heard an extract from Sham by Lucy Lecker, an extract from Art of Now by Michael Umney, and an extract from King's Cross Connections by Lucia Skadzokyu. Next, this is a recording of the live performance Flicker and Sustain, a blank girl project by Hannah White and Stephen Scheel. It's a sound journey through a dreaming time with spliced up nighttime reveries, singing bowls, gongs and voice. Blank Skull is an ongoing exploration into mapping spaces with sound, creating psychosomatic improvised performances of experiences of place, sonic topographies of ritual, assemblage of electroacoustic soundscapes, vocal loops, self-created instruments and sound poetry. sister and a yogi. He is holding my hips and I am bending over and reaching forward as far as I can. It feels great. I keep stretching forward at his request. He and Ella are complimentary about my abilities. I felt I should just go and knock and go in and it would all be okay. I looked up and I saw a friend in front of the window. So I walked to the grounds and thought, should I go into the back part? The furniture and wall coverings all seemed familiar. Four people standing facing the centre. 
with fires behind them. One is Jim Carrey. His ankles start to catch fire. I'm stretching forward so much that it is only him holding me that keeps me upright. He lets go and I fall on the mat, but it is funny. We are in a room with windows, high up and looking out over water. I find a really beautiful piece of glass. I find four things. An ornament figure. A whistle. A piece of glass that is really worn but shaped in a really nice way. And I can't remember the fourth bit. There is a bus journey. I went to a man in a shop. A warehouse or a yard of some kind. I know him and I have great respect and love for him. He tells me how he's recently disposed of a body. Perhaps his father. Behind the railings of his plot. I wonder if it is illegal and would it smell. I am worried for him. He is unconcerned. I went around the front and there was a side part of the house so I went in there. I went upstairs and the carpet in the hall and the staircase were all the same colour. I went up and up until I couldn't go any further and I thought this isn't taking me anywhere so I jumped the banister down the stairs. Jump the banister, 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 down the stairs. Jump the banister. Down the stairs, jump the banister, down the stairs, jump the banister, down the stairs, jump the banister, down the stairs. There is confidence. I'm with my father, trying to make a fake beard and a moustache for him. I take a really close-up photo of his mouth for reference. We discuss the type of hair I'm going to use. I stress the importance of a hard bristle. We are in a supermarket. James and someone else take some items and they leave. I say I'll catch them up. It's unclear. They have run away with stolen items they somehow knew. A lake with a house that was safe that I knew. On the left, there are hundreds of people waiting. They say to us, you can go round the back, sneak in and get in there. But we are asking where our guns and our hats are. The place is very odd, like another world. 
I'm trying to let it come back to me, but I can't figure it out. It's confusing. A really odd feeling that it could have gone further, but there was danger there. Or there was something sinister there, something wrong. A really weird loop. It didn't feel good, or not bad, but it was just... How do you get out of this? Really surreal. There seemed to be something beyond it. It was just going around on those two levels. There is a group of children. There is water. The next thing I know, I am dressed in an odd black soldier uniform. Something from an apocalyptic or dystopian world. On the back of a van with a couple of other people. I don't have a hat and we are driving towards a derelict warehouse space. There is a performance. They go to follow and I hold them back and run them into a wall. They sidestep the wall as it gets closer and I punch them. He looks through the racks of his father's closet and chooses a few tunic-like garments to give to me. Or for me to give to someone, or perhaps to use to cover something. The body, my father. But I like the garments and I wonder if I could use them instead. There is a new tenant. I'm in a hall. People are on bungees in pairs. They are recognisable. I am free to move, but it's a bit of a struggle. I get a cup of wine, a collapsible cup. I got it from somebody, not violently, but it was sneaky, or with the threat of violence. Perhaps I bit them. There is a journey.
bird's eye view of them running away. Near the fence is a building, and on the other side, the police are talking to someone. They dodge them. I catch up with them and say the best way to deal with this is to put on the clothing. I help my brother put on the clothing. A tiny yellow vest. He has a really smart suit on too, color matching. into a shop full of curiosities and crystals. They try to get it from me and get hold of it. There's a struggle, and I hold them. As I hold them, I pass the cup to someone else. There is my studio. There is Francesca and Sam. That was Flicker and Sustain, a live performance from the Blank Skull Project by Hannah White and Stephen Scheel. This is the end of part one of East Castaway Listening Lounge. We'll be back with more audio works, radio documentaries and sound art selected from an open submission process. We'll be back after a short musical intermission.
said over there.
Welcome back to East Castaway, a listening lounge for audio works from radio makers, podcasts and sound artists. This is the second half of the summer edition of East Castaway, hosted in June at Setspace in Dalston. Next, Eloise Stevens takes us to Vienna in 1939 for a tale of love, losing and loving again in Edith's passport. We'll hear an extract from Finding the Words, a series of soundscapes created for rainbow pilgrims exploring the rites and passage of LGBTQ migrants in the UK by Lucia Skadzokio and The Blind Sailor by Hebda Fisher, produced for Kerning Cultures, a podcast of stories from the Middle East. This was just before my 17th birthday. And when he... um I hadn't seen him on my birthday, and he came in to wish me happy birthday, and he was free, but he said he's got to leave. I liked him as, you, as a brother. From the first go, he defended me. If somebody attacked me or anything, he, he, he was there. You know, we, we got on quite well. But of course, hadn't we not separated, I don't think I'd have married him ever. One night, about three, four o'clock in the morning, we had to stand in a queue, a whole load of young people in outside in the cold for a long time, and then we applied for a passport, and we got the passport, we you know, even everything like a proper passport, and then on the front it had a big J on, Jew. So everybody knew. Then. anybody at all when I came to England. I had a very horrible job, terrible. Very hard work, old-fashioned, no dishwasher, no washing machine, all, all was done by hand. I cried every night because when I went to bed I missed my mother and father. I never had have gone had I known I'd never see them again. When he found out where I was in England, he um, um, said he's got a motorbike and he was coming to see me. And I was looking forward to, to see him, of course. And when um, when he was due to come, he rang, and he said he, his motorbike had broken down, which was true, probably. But of course, I I was a bit hurt and, and upset, and I thought he was going to he was told one of his old stories again. So I I think I don't know what I wrote, but I, I was cross. And so he never wrote to me again. And I thought, well, you can't be so mean. And you, after all, you, I was nasty to him, and he was quite right to be, um, to be upset. So I wrote a letter to him, and I said, um, I'm, I didn't say I was sorry. I said, if he wanted to have news from Vienna, from home, and his um, family... Um, I've got news, I, I hear every week from them, and um, would he get in touch with me? And that's when he got, we got together again.
It was a very great change because he was grown up and he was only a thin little little boy when I saw him last in Vienna and he's, uh, he was a young officer and he was he was quite nice looking and uh, and of course we we you know we got very friendly then. I felt I could trust him and you know And we knew each other from childhood on. It didn't. It makes a difference. But uh, but our parents never knew that we were married. Unfortunately, the most extreme thing that people go through with is that you are Zulu, and there are certain principles and regulations that if you are a Zulu person, you will be behaving this certain way and you live your life the certain way, obviously, which you are made for a man, and you can't wear trousers, and um, you can't talk in a certain way, you can't sit in a certain way. This culture of ancestries that people believe in, every single family or every single individual would know about it, and it will be your rulership in your life. I've never heard of a form of way where they speak good about LGBT people. I guess that's why I never bumped into any LGBT person, even to confirm. Even myself, I knew I was LGBT, but I couldn't even share it with my own sister until later on coming to England. So those kind of form of words that they use for LGBT or describe an LGBT person is derogatory, pure derogatory. It's a terrible, terrible word. I don't even know where to start, basically, to say it in English. I grew up very, like, strongly in the Jewish organization, and uh, I n never knew about LGBT. It was something that it wasn't spoken about. I never really got to meet an LGBT person in person in South Africa who would confirm to me personally that, oh, you know what, I'm gay. Despite of the fact that I left at the age of 16, and let alone then to transition, it would be even another case that is highly dangerous even more. Because um, having to wait for the hormones and having to confirm that I'm trans, while I still have all the facilities of a female. Already that people are confused about lesbians, and then how then do I even start explaining myself being transgender? So they would want to be insecure even more. They would want to know what genitals do I even have there. They're all oh, you trans men. What's that? I can't even really explain in Zulu what is a trans man. There's no word for it. I started seeing doctors late 2015. So the change period, obviously, from being a masculine lesbian uh, to a trans man, there's not much time, you know. It's just a couple of years apart. I've been living as a man for almost two years or three years like now, um, pre-testosterone, changing my name, everything. I'm safe here in the UK. Well, it's normal here and it's more realistic, it's more comfortable and obviously if you don't respect the person you will be in trouble with the law. Despite that South Africa has a supporting law, 
but a community. You can have a good law, but if you have a, a bad community, then there's a problem. Most beginners, when they sail, they look at the sail, figure out whether the sail is flapping or not. Most advanced sailors don't actually necessarily have to look at the sail when they're sailing. And in my case, I can't look at the sail when I'm sailing. So in order to solve that problem, I need to feel the boat. I feel how how much the boat is healing or like how, how much it's leaning, how fast it's going. I can listen to the sail. I want you to meet Mohamed Farid. He's a recent transplant to Seattle in the United States from Dubai. He's 30 years old, tall, with dark brown hair and thick glasses. He has a dry sense of humor, cracking jokes easily between English and Arabic. And he loves to sail. A few months ago, he took classes at a Seattle sailing club to learn how to operate a type of boat called a keel boat. Okay, how about this? I'll take the filler and then you can take the... He passed all the tests, but the sailing club still won't let Mohammed captain a boat alone because he's legally blind. Let's go back a bit. Hi, Heba. Hi, it's Anjad. Alhamdulillah, it worked. <laughs> this is Duat Mabruk, Mohammed's mom. I spoke with her over the phone from her home in Cairo, Egypt. Mohammed was my first child. I was 24 years old. The first 10 day I had my mom visiting me for my delivery. He was a fully healthy baby. She left on the 10th day and the 11th day exactly, I noticed that Mohammed has roaring eyes. You know what does it mean, roaring eyes? like? The black part of the eye will move a lot in the eye, more than normal, that in time times you see the eyes only white. And this is, was the first sign I noticed. My retina did not develop fully. What that means is I will see around 10% of what the normal person sees, but it's almost like you are looking through a tunnel. I can only see in the middle, and there's stained glass at the end of the tunnel because that 10% is more blurry. You are sad, why me, all this? I was lucky to have a very nice baby, always laughing. So I start to deal with the situation and I start to think, and then what is next? Another year and Mohammed needs to go to a daycare, I need to look for a school. There is no daycare that will accept him. And I find in Egypt at that time, all kids are in special school for the blind and I didn't like the school I didn't like the segregation they were telling her that like yeah I'll probably not really achieve anything and whatnot they should probably just save up money so I could be like comfortable when I'm older and unemployed um so she was like I'm not taking any of this and she went to Canada so Mohammed spent most of his childhood in Canada 
There, however, the services for visually impaired children weren't that great either. Whereas in Egypt, there were no services and no expectations. In Canada, there was a lot of services and low expectation for independence. Their assumption was that you could strive for mediocrity and that's totally acceptable, which uh, my mom did not agree with. In Canada, Du'at found some like-minded teachers who believed that Muhammad's abilities outweighed any disability. We'd have a spelling test every week, and as someone who is visually impaired, you learn how to spell later than everyone else because you learn how to spell by reading, and I don't read as much as other people, so my spelling tends to be worse. This teacher would basically, every time I uh, failed the spelling test, she'd give me detention. Um, despite the fact that in some ways you could argue it was out of my control. Her, her thing was, life's unfair, you have to deal with it. And that kind of became Muhammad's philosophy on life, that people will likely treat him unfairly, and he will prove them wrong. He was rejected from engineering school because they didn't believe a visually impaired person could become an engineer. He was rejected three times from Harvard, twice from the top consulting firm McKinsey, from gym memberships who felt he was too much of a liability... Today, Mohammed is an engineer, graduated from Harvard, worked at McKinsey, and is a regular at the gym. Mohammed moves through life with determination. He's unfazed by obstacles, like being the captain of a 27-foot sailboat. This one's uh, the main halyard, it's my guess. But... Yes. And... In sailing, there are two basic types of boats, dinghy boats and keel boats. Dinghies are smaller, maybe fitting one to four people. Keelboats are much larger boats. Mohammed is an experienced dinghy sailor from his time in Dubai. And when he moved to Seattle last year, he signed up for keelboat sailing classes. I actually scored pretty highly on the exam, both the practical and the written part. The instructor doesn't actually get how I managed to do man overboard properly, but it worked. And then uh, they were like, uh, we prefer it if you had a certified sailor with you, blah, blah, blah someone who is basically equivalently certified on the boat. And um, what do you think should be the case? I don't think putting it as a longer term thing makes sense. I think if someone is sighted and is able to communicate to me if I'm going to hit something, I think it's more than sufficient. Mohammed says that this extra person doesn't need to know how to sail and that he'll be fine captaining his own keelboat. Now, I recently got my keelboat certification, so Mohammed and I go out sailing one day after work. We are four on the boat. Mohammed is our designated captain, he's learning the boat with his hands, and we are his eyes. Okay, let me just look around. I want to. I just want to figure out the overall layout of the boat. So this is a. It's a tiller. Where is the motor, or is it no, in, inboard? Inboard. Okay. So I think the last two things left now are uh, the engine, and then we can basically undock. I think. Yeah. It's one of those precious Seattle summer afternoons, sunny and slightly crisp on the water. And as we motor away from the dock, Mohammed's at the tiller, driving. Actually, this part I need help with. I need someone to tell me if I'm going to uh, like bump into something, whether at where at which way I need to go, left or right or whatnot, because I don't have good visibility. And if we're about to crash, just take this thing and push it. Where is the motorboat? What? Starboard, 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 starboard. <laughs> <laughs>
Right back. After a few close calls, we get to open water, ready to raise our sails and shut off the motor. So I will face the wind. Wait, one step, one step. How did you point us into the wind? I can feel the wind coming into my face. You can actually tell it from your ears. If, if when I'm looking towards one direction, if I hear the wind in both ears, that's the direction the wind's coming from, which now is like 10 o'clock. People think because they wouldn't know how to do something the way I do it, that it's, you can't do it the way I do it. Do you ever just get tired, though, that you constantly have to prove to people as opposed to them just believing it from the get-go? Yeah, sometimes it wears on you, but that's okay. That's like my life. I'm used to that. All of this, working towards being the captain of his own keelboat, it's not actually just about sailing from Hamed's. It's about him pushing back on the world to be as independent as possible, free from having to rely on others, free from being dependent on other people. For now, Mohammed will have to have a certified sailor with him when he wants to sail these larger boats. But he's confident he'll be his own captain, someday. Just keep going the way it's going. We just heard Edith's Passport by Eloise Stevens, an extract from Finding the Words by Lucia Scalzocchio and The Blind Sailor by Heba Fisher. Next, we'll hear an extract from The Whispering Project, a Resonance FM project in association with the Exeter University of Arts and Culture Fellowship by Michael Umney and Ed Baxter. We'll hear an audio illustration of the lesser-known Wilfred Owen poem, Miners, produced by Chris Janes, and an extract from Florence from Jesse Lawson's podcast, Now Then, stories of people over 70 told in their own words. The reason why regions are dry is that radiation grinds a grape to make the region. The reason why the regions are dry is because the radiation dries the regions. <laughs> the reason why regions are dry is because radiation dries the reasons. The reason why the reasons are dry is because the grape dries the raisin to make the raisin. The reason why raisins are dry is because the grapes make the raisins dry. The reason why raisins are dry is because grapes make them dry. The raisins were dry get picked by grapes. The reason grapes are dry is because of for the reason raisins are dry is because of radiation. The reason of radiation is because of a reason. The reason because of radiation is because of a reason. The reason why radiation is because of a reason. The radiation is the reason for radiation. The radiation. The radiation. The reason the radiation. 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 Free little girls. Free little village. A really little village. A really.
There was a whispering in my hearth, a sigh of the coal, grown wistful of a former earth, you might recall. I listened for a tale of leaves and smothered ferns. Fronded forests and the low sly lives before the fawns. My fire might show steam phantoms simmer from time's old cauldron. Before the birds made nests in summer, or men had children. and moans down there. Of boys that slept right asleep. And men writhing for air. And I saw white bones in the cinder shard. Bones without number. Many the muscled bodies charred. And few remember. I thought of all that worked dark pits, of war and died, digging the rock where death reputes, peace lies indeed. Comforted years will sit soft chaired in rooms of amber. The years will stretch their hands well cheered by our life's ember. The centuries will burn rich loads with which we groaned, whose warmth shall lull their dreaming lids while songs are crooned. But they will not dream of us poor lads left in the ground. They will not dream of us poor lads left in the ground.
Bathroom, dear, it's just through, through, just there. Amazing. Not the door you open, the other one. But I want you to see the view first, really. That's the interesting thing in this house. Just this is my 90th birthday, okay? 90th. I've got all these Egyptian people and all these presents. Right, now, we're in Scotland, Glasgow, and uh, this is still Florence talking as usual. I'm now going to tell you how I met my husband. And please forgive me if I get emotional, but I think it must have been the most wonderful day in my life. You wouldn't believe it, ladies and gentlemen, when I tell you that my mother married a man that had two sons and my mother had two daughters. So therefore, uh, the two daughters married the two sons. Now, please try to understand, it wasn't my father that I lost in the Air Force. This was a man that mother married again about two, three years later. Anyway, cut the long story short, my mother married that chap. And then, a short time later, we found out that he had two sons. And my mother, are you with me? My mother had two daughters. And this chap she married had two sons. Now, the, fortunately, I was the one to meet the, the first soldier that came to the door shortly after that, which was about maybe a year later or something. This young soldier came to the door. And he was the one I married. His name was George Allison. This knock came to the door this day, and he had opened it, and he was, oh, he was such this handsome man. Now, can you imagine that? He answered the door. And I was trying to help Mum at this time. We'd lost our dad, and we tried to help Mum as much as we could in the house. And um, uh, this chap came to the door this day, and he knocked at the door. I said, oh, do come in. Can I ask who you are? And he said, I'm George Allison. And when he spoke, I fell in love there and then with his wonderful uniform and how marvellous he looked. He wasn't anything important, he was just a soldier. But oh my goodness, his shoulders were straight and oh, he was so handsome. He had big brown eyes and a lovely tan because he'd been in Egypt and places like that that I just read about in books at school, so I didn't know much about it. But, oh, he was so handsome. And he took his Glengarry off. Now, you'll wonder what that was. But that was a little cap they wore. And it was like your, your handbag, when you put it down, and it folds up like a purse. And, well, they had, it was like that. You picked it up, and it opened like a handbag. And they put it on their hand, on their head. Uh, please forgive me. I'm, I forget things. I'm 90, you know, remember that. He put his hat on and, oh my goodness, he took it off and he just looked so handsome. Beautiful black curly hair and big eyes and he's just a very handsome man. I fell in love with him right away. Then he left the house and, oh my goodness, uh, Mum said, 
are you all right? And I said, oh, he was so handsome. Well, that was your brother. And she explained to me best she could. Remember, my mother was a tough, hard lady. And she told me how, how, how she was married now. And this was my stepbrother. And, uh, and she wasn't sure whether it, it, we could be... It was just well, let me tell you that he was my stepbrother. He was no relation whatsoever. He was the son of the man that my mother had married again. So therefore he was my stepbrother. And that was the person I met. His name was George Allison. And about two years later, I married him. So I think I'll just end it there because you must be bored to tears listening to my terrible accent. So please forgive me, but being half Scottish and half half English is difficult, you know, because some people have taught me, my friends, they say, where did she come from anyway? And I say, Newcastle. But I'm a Scot now because I've lived here many, many years. I came here way back, so I can't even remember how many years I've been here. But nevertheless, I hope you've enjoyed my little chat. And I'll speak to you again sometime, I'm sure, in the future. Because I'm sure the good Lord has work for me to do yet. So, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> when I edit this, I'm going to add some music to it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favourite song or a favourite musician that you like? We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you always do. Till the good stars rise, the bad clouds far away. And will you please say hello to the folks that I know? Tell them I won't be long. They'll be happy to know that when I saw them go, I was singing a song. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. That was lovely. Thank you. We just heard an extract from The Whispering Project by Michael Amney and Ed Baxter, Miners by Chris James, and an extract from Florence by Jesse Lawson. We'll finish with a live audio essay by Mike Brooks, but if you'd like to submit an audio work for our next East Castaway Listening Lounge in October, please do get in touch via Twitter or Facebook at East Cast Show or contact us via our website, eastcastshow.com, where we'll post more information about the next event and everything Eastcast related. And here is Sovereignty in the Sea by Mike Brooks, recorded live at the East Castaway Listening Lounge in June. Until next time, thank you for listening. Whitstable and Nausicaa, the second of a series of sound walks in which we retrace the steps of Odysseus as he navigates our late capitalist age.
Michel Serres describes the sound of the sea as follows. We never hear what we call background noise so well as we do at the seaside. It seems established there for all eternity, in the strict horizontal. Stable, unstable cascades are endlessly trading. This restlessness is within hearing, just shy of definite signals, just shy of silence. This is what we hear now as the sea noise becomes the foreground, delimited and bordered by the recording process, and in real time, in the background, with the actual sea noise. We use the sea as our ultimate border, that which will destroy us. We stand as Hegel's becoming subject, defeating the animal that constitutes the human subject's natural being. As Ceres tells us, the sea noise is the original hate, and we base our existence beyond this hatred. Odysseus heard this hatred too. Awoken in the sixth book of the Odyssey by the harsh cries of women playing football. It is Nausicaa and her girlfriends on the beach. As Anne Carson notes, he is shocked by the shriek of a woman's voice. Carson outlines how women's voices in Hellenic and Roman times could not contaminate the civic spaces of men and were pushed out beyond city limits to beaches, mountains or rooftops. There were women-only festivals at which participants released profundity, unspeakable things, a shouting catharsis on behalf of the city in the spirit of Nausicaa. Now, however, it is men Odysseus discovers, who after a day of economic productivity, of stable and unstable cascades of endless trading in the city, shout unspeakable things. The men too have been relegated to the city limit, beneath the overground train line in a patch of brownfield unfit for residential development. It is Friday evening. The men have divided themselves into 32 teams, each representing a nation about to contest this month's World Cup. They wear the full kit, the insignia, 
the flag and the colours of each adopted nation, crying out to one another beneath the spectral onslaught of each train as seagulls before the sea. There is a transfer of matter from one surface to another, an object leaving a body and becoming potentiated in the process, becoming itself a sounding body, an agent and a sovereign as its motion through space and its interruption by the net creates music. This percussive yield for the player signals a new mastery, a new frontier, a new capital. This is the romance of sovereignty. As Achille and Bembe would have it, resting on the belief that the subject is the master and the controlling author of his or her own meaning. In London, background noise is someone else's foreground noise, and on and on in a tessellated pattern until the city ends. Serres notes with the sea that background noise lies under the cuttings of all phenomena, a proteus taking on any shape, the matter and flesh of manifestations. Yet here it is other people's foreground noise from which we map our physical space, from which we create form, from which we become the sovereign master of meaning. Just as the footballers, aping the mannerisms and wearing the robes of sovereign nations they may or may not have ever been to, we too draw what we need from the sonic spectrum around us, creating form and mastering the creation of form from actual phenomena. For Hegel, to risk one's life was to define absolute sovereignty. Moses did this, both his own life and that of his nation, as he made form emerge from the background noise of the sea. His aim was twofold, first to birth a new sovereign nation, freeing, saving and empowering his people, but second to birth the enlightenment, to bend the greatest forces of the natural world to man's needs turn in a simple gesture the slaves into masters. As the master of water, of fluidity, he led a new nation away from their Egyptian captors, themselves the masters of stone, the eternal structure, the ossified, the pebble.
Serres too describes a tear between two dividing waters, between two tongues, looking for noise in the midst of the deep sea. Here we leave London. We start new lives on the Kent coast. We are, as the poet Derek Walcott tells us in Seagraves, the adulterer, hearing Nausicaa's name and every girl's outcry. This brings nobody peace, the ancient war between obsession and responsibility that will never finish. Finally, the sea is the foreground, the entire spectrum. Its white noise a condition of the possibility of meaning. It is not form that emerges, but the potential of form. Waves within waves within waves, a fractal recursion like the sonic logic of London. In every creation myth, the sea is constant. Every wave confirms that the signal of meaning is lost that the relationship between chaos and form is an ancient war that will never finish, that the sea conceals for Ceres information under the vast abundance of information, a straw in a haystack full of straw. In the city, play is conducted in the soundscapes of overlapping contexts. The footballers practicing Bataille's definition of sovereignty, of life beyond utility, of an anti-economy, of death as the ultimate principle of excess. At the sovereign frontier, the beach, the point at which we reach the formless, the sea reminds us we are just playing that we came here to admit defeat. If forms emerge, then they are forms a human mind has yet to or may never perceive. A negative capability that instead fractalizes our thoughts inwards, creating myths. Genesis. Play. Apart from life, as nature instructed us, as Odysseus parted from Nausicaa, blessing it rather than in love with it.